Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 227, the Cloud Pod peeps at Azure Explicit Proxy. Good evening, Matt, Ryan, and Jonathan. Full house tonight. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, all. Uh, we missed you all. Uh, we struggled to get people on the same call at the same time for the summer. Hopefully, it gets a little better. <laughs> so continue down through the rest of the year. But uh, you know, or we just need to figure out a different way to record. I'm not really sure what it'll be, but uh, you know, here we are. We get all four of us, uh, and we got an action-packed show. So first up, <coughs> Werner is here to talk about EC2 Classic, and really goodbye EC2 Classic, as they finally turned off the last EC2 Classic instance. On August 15th, two years after Jeff Barr wrote the blog post saying they're going to kill it. Uh, Werner points out that the reason it was classic is because of the network architecture. All instances launch on a giant 10.0.0.0/8 flat network shared between all customers with only a security group separating them apart. Uh, the process for end users is simple, but apparently it was very highly complex for AWS at the time. And he points out that the M1 small that launched was equivalent of one virtual CPU powered by a 1.7 gigahertz Xeon processor with 1.75 gigs of RAM and 160 gigs of local disk, and a whopping 250 megabits per second of network bandwidth for the low price of 10 cents per clocked hour. It's amazing how far hardware's come <laughs> in 15 years. Um, Warner's blog, he said he even ran on the M1 small for about five plus years before he moved it to Amazon S3 website feature and went serverless, where he's been now for 12 years. Uh, and he talked about VPC's introduction in 2013, allowed AWS customers, of course, have their own slice of the AWS cloud. But Classic still lived on for another decade. And the EC2 team kept Classic running until every instance retired or migrated, providing the necessary documentation, tools, and support from engineering and account management throughout the process. And Warner likes to point out that this is one of the best examples of delivering cloud for today's workload as well as tomorrow's, and how AWS won't pull the rug out from underneath you like some other competitors might. <laughs> yeah. Azure and Google. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's certainly veiled there. I think most people know who, who he was referring to there. But it is cool. I mean, the fact that they, they were able to actually retire a thing and not just turn it off on people is pretty amazing. Yeah. And keeping it running with all the documentation and support and everything else, you know, it's kind of an impressive feat while supporting something that's at a much larger scale. Yeah. I mean, a time. VPC launched, and you know after that was kind of like the the rocket ship that was cloud after VPCs launched, and so you had to imagine that EC2 Classic, which really is only ever in US East one, um, was you know a very very small infrastructure and comparatively to everything else. It was in West one too, US West one, because I know we did a couple of migrations. So. West one doesn't even exist. Just Back in the day, it was there. <laughs> you get to pay an extra ten percent to run your workloads there. Yeah. I wonder where that data center is in San Jose. Like I know it's down there somewhere. It's got to be like an Aquanex facility somewhere down there. Uh, I I always forget that region exists because it's ridiculously expensive and has none of the services that people care about. No, I'm actually surprised it didn't make it to London as well because London came pretty early on in the Amazon era, but maybe it came right after VPCs, so it just didn't make it. Hmm. At least there weren't that gateway charges or uh, all that complexity. There was not. That's true. It's a simpler time, Jonathan. It's a simpler time. Uh, Amazon SES is now offering you email delivery and engagement history for every email sent through the SES system. 
the new delivery feature helps customers troubleshoot individual email delivery problems, confirm delivery of critical messages, and identify engaged recipients on a granular single email basis. Senders can investigate trends in delivery performance and see delivery and engagement status for each email sent by SES. This makes it easier for customers to manage and optimize their delivery and campaign performance. Uh, this is actually a feature you paid a lot of money for from a lot of uh, email spam companies <laughs> to be able to do this kind of tracking. So to have this just be part of SES for really a very low cost, uh, it's like for every 1,000 messages, it's like 7 cents. It's like super cheap. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this is an area that's become very commodity apparently in spam delivery. Uh, or for an email delivery for customers who care about actually getting emails to you, like e-commerce vendors who actually want to make sure you get the receipts, <laughs> all those type of things, uh, all now coming through SES, which is pretty great. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. I didn't realize that it was sort of just built in to to SES because they had, yeah, there's a healthy like industry of of companies providing that t- level of service. I can't wait for them to start. Uh, you know, analyzing all the messages that you send, and and then give you some kind of metric based on engagement and the content. You know, you can use AI to uh, like advise on which um, you know, which style of message worked or what kind of language worked, and that kind of thing. Give you some useful feedback for marketing. Feedback will be directly in the machine, right? And then the email, the next emails will write themselves. <laughs> so what I what I actually like, I turned it on for my account because I have some. Some notification coming from, I think, my my primary web server that is bouncing. And I haven't been able to figure out what it is because, of course, I don't get email for the bounces or for the, the send because it's not getting to where it needs to go. And so I was able to actually use this, turn it on, and then basically have it send me an alert for every failed email that gets sent out, which I will turn off very quickly. But um, <laughs> I will at least be able to figure out why my reputation score is like at 8%. Uh, which is not not bad. It's not in the red zone where they're going to yell at me, but it's above the warning level. And I would like to get that down to zero, uh, especially since I only send 32 emails a month. It seems like a really high percentage for what it is. So I definitely <laughs> want to get that fixed. Uh, but I don't, I don't exactly know what it is. So I'm actually kind of excited for this feature because it's going to tell me exactly what email it was and who it was going to and, and why it failed. And so I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting for the next one to go out so I get an email. I mean, in theory, you're supposed to have the SNS set up to automatically remove that person and follow all those things at the SES team, which is by far my least favorite team there. It's probably like auto block notifications to myself. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just not set up properly in the SES sender. So it's, it's yeah. something stupid. I just don't know what it is. And to go, like, I went one day to go look at the send mail logs. I didn't have send mail logging turned on. And I was like, do I really want to turn this on? Because that just seems like a way I can run out of disk space. And so I just haven't got there. So I'm, now I'm going to see where it ends up <laughs> this way instead. This isn't a big pressing issue, as you can tell, because I could have solved this in a hundred different ways, but now I have this way. So I'm going to try this one. <laughs> this one was easy because yeah. I went click, click, click. And it's an advantage service. Yeah. Sometimes easy is best. It is. Uh, all right. Well, Google did not make my life easy today. And so because I was annoyed uh, at this blog post, uh, I've decided to be snarky about it. <laughs> and so I'm going to uh, go through these. Uh, there's 161 things they apparently announced at Google Cloud Next. Uh, and so... You know, not all those things were on main stage, of course, uh, and that we covered last week. So none of these are like AI things, really. Although there are some duet AI things in here, I guess, technically. So some of them are AI. So show you back. Um, but these are the ones that kind of struck my interest, and I thought I'd tell you about them and then give you my my snarky response to them, uh, so you can, uh, you know, tell me how I did. So first up, reinforcement learning with human feedback or RLHF is now in public preview. See Skynet. You may still need us in the future. Thumbs up. Uh, yeah, I like it. I like it. 
Grounding in Vertex AI roots generative outputs in your enterprise data to increase confidence in your generative AI search and conversational applications. See, Ryan, it's not about electricity. How do I understand this less now? I don't know. <laughs> we did talk about this one last week, but I didn't understand it then either. If it's not about electricity, I'm farther away. <laughs> so what I think I think this is, is that you can basically give it your data as a grounding source to the AI so you don't have to feed that into every prompt. And then your prompts already have that grounding data to apply to the model so that you don't have to train a custom model for your use case. I think is what it does. If I were to read through the tea leaves, and if anybody out, out there is listening to this and is like, well, that's what it does, don't take my word for it. That's what I think it does. So I haven't read any documentation, but that's the gist that I've gotten out of watching a couple of sessions. And uh, no, that kind of makes sense. You don't want to generate a new model every data set. Yeah. It's a way of providing facts. Because yeah. and it helps uh, stop hallucinations and things like that, but it's it's about providing facts which are which can be verified like before and you know, after a response has been generated, you can then go back and compare it with the, with the fact list. Make sure that it's not spouting a bunch of crap. It's about the snark, not about the facts, Jonathan. Move on. That <laughs> Palm Two, their medically tuned version of Palm Two, will be available as a preview to more customers in healthcare and life science industry. Uh, Medpalm is the relative of Napalm, thrice removed, just so you keep that in mind. <laughs> All I can think about is the Palm Pilot. Yeah. It's just my dad's old Palm Pilot that he used to love and was really mad when it broke. Yep. Duet AI is in preview across a variety of products in the data analytics, including Looker, BigQuery, and Dataplex. I appreciate being able to blame the data on someone other than me. Hey, it was my Duet partner, I swear. They now support Hootie and Delta Lake within Big Lake and added performance acceleration for Apache Iceberg. Sadly, there were no hoodies at the conference and Iceberg ahead. <laughs> Big Lake can now be your single lake house with cross-cloud materialized views and cross-cloud joins in BigQuery Omni. Seems like a pretty lonely Big Lake with only one lake house, though. You don't really want any neighbors in your lake house, though. I want True. it all to myself. I mean, if it's big enough, I don't really care. BigQuery data cleaner rooms can help you understand your Google and YouTube campaign performance. If only it could help us figure out our podcast performance. <laughs> yeah, there's no hope for that. <laughs> now you can access thousands of data sets from hundreds of providers, including Axiom, Bloomberg, Equifax, Nielsen, and Zoom Info directly in BigQuery. Or how I like to think of it, my crazy uncle points out that Google is biased by the left with all these data sources. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Cloud Spanner Data Boost, now generally available, lets you analyze your Spanner data via services such as BigQuery, Spark on Dataproc, or Dataflow with virtually no impact to your transactional workloads. And your CFO <laughs> wept. And if I had a dollar for every time someone said virtually no impact, I'd be retired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> a new BigQuery export to Bigtable reverse ETL feature in preview lets you serve analytical insights from your applications without having to touch an ETL tool. Thank God the only thing worse they could have done was announce their own version of Blue. <laughs> I love the idea of a reverse ETL tool. <laughs> Do you, you load it like untransformed? <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of, it's sort of like, I don't really know what this is, but reverse ETL, sure. Yeah. So this so is you, you ETL it, and then <laughs> this is the way you undo it. So when you break your, you break your original data set, you can recreate it. <laughs> Fully managed memory store for Redis cluster is now in preview. Easy to use, open source compatible Redis cluster service that provides up to 60 times more throughput than memory store for Redis. 
with microsecond latencies. And uh, please reset the cache. Mm-hmm. Which one? Mm-hmm. Which cache? All of them. Because you have two there. That's two caches. <laughs> Bigtable change streams feature allows you to capture data changes to Bigtable table as the changes happen, letting you stream them for processing or analysis. Don't cross the Kafka streams. <laughs> Cloud Bigtable requests priorities and preview let you execute large workloads that are not time sensitive as low priority jobs in the Bigtable cluster and minimizing the impact of batch processing on your serving workloads. If the query ran when I wasn't staring at the console, did it really happen? So now I just have to turn this on and I can still use full table scans for everything then, right? Yeah, it only costs you an arm and a leg. So. Yeah. <laughs> Looker Studio users now have native access to Alteryx Designer Cloud for data preparation and enhanced cloud connectivity, starting with Excel and CSV files from storage formats, including SharePoint and OneDrive. If your loved one is suffering from dashboard envy, try Alteryx. Side effects may include dizziness, <laughs> nausea, vomiting, and unhappiness with data displayed. <laughs> <laughs> New multi-slice technology and preview lets you scale AI workloads beyond the boundaries of physical TPU pods with tens of thousands of cloud TPU V5e or TPU V4 chips. This also produces bills beyond the boundaries of your CFO's imagination. Mm-hmm. Forecast that. <laughs> exactly. On your TPUs. ARM-based C3A powered by Ampere 1 processors will be in preview next month. Hey, guys, remember when ARM was all the rage? Didn't even make the main stage this time. Ouch, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah. C3VM support for Hyperdisk Extreme is now in preview and supports 500,000 IOPS. Cha-ching! <laughs> all the IOPS all the time. Why do you need 500,000 IOPS? Like, See, the thing is, you're better for not knowing the answer to that question. <laughs> and so I'd like to move on. Yeah. <laughs> Hyperdisk storage, now in preview, allows customers to provision capacity and performance in aggregate pools and then thinly provision hyperdisk volumes. I'm hyper excited to troubleshoot this. <laughs> you get a lot of IOPS. Woohoo. VMs have new uptime SLAs, a 99.95% for memory-optimized VMs, and a 99.9% for all other VM families. This is Google, and we know these numbers are dream anyways and made up. Future Reservations, now in preview, is a new compute engine feature that allows you to reserve compute capacity for a future date. Now, Google doesn't like it when I say this, but they're not very cloudy. But come on, you're making it this easy that I have to predict my future? Come on. <laughs> VMware engine nodes have been upgraded with 2 terabyte RAM options and 64 to 128 vCPUs and up to 50 terabytes of storage for Google Cloud VMware engine, as well as three new storage options, NetApp volumes, file store, and storage-only vSAN nodes. Finally, the VMware offering is matched to the last servers I purchased to run VMware at scale at a job 12 years ago. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, it fits right with the workload, though. <laughs> yep. New service extension callouts for cloud load balancers let you customize services such as specialized monitoring, logging, traffic steering, or authentication. And I don't have a joke for this. I'm just here for the future. This is great. <laughs> but then there's this feature. Automation solution toolkit for Google Cloud Load Balancer global front ends lets you integrate and automate products, including Cloud Armor, Cloud Load Balancing, and Cloud CDN into popular CI/CD platforms. And of course, it's Jenkins. Yes. Get the fuck out, Google. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's Jenkins. Uh, always Jenkins. Broadcom is integrating its secure web gateway natively into Google Cloud. Uh, Broadcom, you mean the guys own VMware? Yeah, I'm going to pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Elasticsearch, MongoDB, Enterprise Advance, and SAP are all available on Google Distributed Cloud, available via Google Cloud Marketplace. You're really starting to scratch the bottom of the barrel on these 160 Google. Really getting difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. New Bastion host on GDC Edge in preview enables you to easily view and control Google Cloud access to GDC Edge for troubleshooting purposes, supporting you with operational sovereignty and compliance requirements. Ah, uh, crap. Google Edge is down. Call Google and get them to fix their crap. They say they can't log in. Crap, the Bastion is down too. No! <laughs> they partnered with GitLab to offer a secure DevOps solution with integrated source management, artifact management, CICD, and enhanced security. At least someone still finds GitLab relevant. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> the Google Maps platform team introduced environment APIs for solar, air quality, and pollen. Gesundheit. Agentless vulnerability scanning by Tenable is integrated into SEC, and I call shenanigans. There was no mention it was powered by Tenable last week or on main stage. Here we thought <laughs> they were special. They were inventing something like Inspector. No, no, no. It's just a partner offering that they took credit for. Yeah. Thanks for that. We expand the coverage footprint of our sensitive data protection offerings with enhanced integration for Dataplex and Dialogflow and Cloud SQL. This is really to protect those services from Ryan, who is not sensitive in this regard. Not at all. The Google Cloud Certified Professional Cloud Security Engineer Exam Guide is now available. Step one, it's GCCPCSE certification. You will be quizzed. Oh. <laughs> wow. Google Chat now supports up to 500,000 participants in a single space to help build thriving communities, even in largest organizations. They will, of course, need you to use AI or PubSub to build processing to keep up with the onslaught of messages from 500,000 users. But hey, that's another service they can sell you. <laughs> yeah. 500,000 participants in a single space sounds like my worst nightmare. Yeah, like I don't think you can even read. Like if everyone's chatting on that, no one's going to read it. <laughs> it scrolls by too fast. It's like one of those live YouTube streams on the yeah. Twitch streams with lots of followers. Duet AI for Google Workspaces can create a whole new presentation and slides complete with text, charts, and images based on your relevant content in Drive and Gmail. Man, could you imagine the presentations based off my Google spam folder? Epic. <laughs> that said my management career is off to a good start though yeah got it duet ai and google meet helps you look and sound your best with new ai powered enhancements including studio look studio lighting and studio sound as well as dynamic tiles and automatic face detection so remote attendees can see everyone in a meeting room with each person in-person attendee getting their own video tile with their name i have zero notes on this other than if you didn't force rto you wouldn't have to need this just, <laughs> just picturing and putting name badges on everyone with their name on, on it uh, we announced the winners of the Google Cloud Customer Awards again you don't seem to understand what a feature is and this goes from 129 to 147 <laughs> on the list and oh 148 and 152 are just the same thing but with startups <laughs> and then partners get covered from 153 to 160 and no one cares and that is Google Next in a heartbeat <laughs> It's it's like they didn't think you were going to read all the way through it, so they're just like padding the end. Thing. They'll never get this. Yeah, I'm like at 129. All of a sudden, it's like here's all our customer stories that we presented at Google Next. Yeah. Like, Those aren't features. You can't call this article features that you announced. <laughs> Dude, I got to like 90, maybe 100, and I started zoning out. So I I figured there was another 70, 60 somewhere in there. Yeah, I mean you weren't that far off if you stopped at the customers. You only had uh, yeah. 50 more to go. So. Yeah. All right, that was fun. I enjoyed it. Now let's move on to Azure, which I won't enjoy. <laughs> Azure continues to release weird insight tools for things that I thought already gave insights, 
But VM Insights provide a quick and easy method to monitor the client workloads on your Azure virtual machines and virtual machine scale sets, as well as Azure Arc-enabled servers running on-premises or multi-cloud. And again, this feature is Azure Monitor VM Insights using Azure Monitor Agent. Thank you, Azure. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an agent to get it gathers the logs and metrics. Yeah. Yeah, it, does, it did note in the article if you're using the old legacy Azure log agent, that's been deprecated and you should move to this, which is not clear in the title of this at all. It's about logs. So I appreciate that. Uh, Azure Firewall now supports explicit proxy mode on all the outbound paths. And I really love this support of the porn industry. Uh, oh, no, it's not that. With this uh-huh. enabled, you have the option to configure a proxy setting directly on the sending application, such as a web browser with Azure Firewall acting as a designated proxy. This configuration allows traffic from the sending application to be directed to the private IP address of the firewall, facilitating direct egress from the firewall without needing a without the need for a UDR, which again that sounds like a weird disease. I don't know how this involved, but <laughs> yeah. there you go. Pretty sure Jonathan knows how this works, but I'm lost. <laughs> Our proxy expert's that. nodding his head. It's, it's after <laughs> after five. So I, I basically think what it is is instead of setting the proxy at the server level, so all traffic routes through the firewall as your outbound proxy, you can now tell the web browser or the application using web browser settings to now use the proxy that you specified in the browser to access the internet. So you don't have to set that as all default traffic out through the firewall. So, yeah. but if this is in the, I guess maybe useful if you're running like Azure Virtual Desktop and stuff like that. Who's targeted at? I mean, that's one option for it. But even even in a server where you're making a call to an API, you don't necessarily want the entire server to access the internet. And right now, the way to do that is you'd have to set the default route as the firewall and then inspect Mm. all the traffic coming from the server. In this case, you only have to tell the API browser capability, whatever language you're using, that that needs to be proxied through the proxy of the firewall and then everything else can still stay on the default route with no route or route to some other part of your network that you care less about. But that's client side. That's the... but a server is sometimes a client, Ryan. It's not always a server. I mean, I guess I guess the cool the, the feature is that Azure Firewall now supports being a proxy for applications yeah. which are supported having proxy settings for you know, thirty years, which is actually quite a cool feature. I just assume that by default it did that. Like, if you already supported proxy, I didn't realize there was a difference for it to support it at the application level versus the OS level. Yeah, but but Azure Firewall isn't a proxy. Is it? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't before. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that that's it's the it's the firewall that is the explicit proxy, which is cool. Yeah, because now you can just mo- instead of having your outbound traffic and egress rules for TCP ports and protocols, you can sort of have you know your cake and eat it too. I assume. Yeah, I mean, uh, like thinking about you know locking down um, uh, cloud presence for no internet access, except you need access for CrowdStrike and you need access for you know data dog or new relic or some other kind of logging thing. So you got like no internet access apart from the access that we need, and so having mm-hmm. uh, having like as your firewall be able to support proxying those specific things is actually pretty useful. User defined routing UDR. Uh-huh. I, I, I had to look Acronyms. it up. Sorry. Yeah. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. 
Foghorn Certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Well, last week when we recorded, uh, Matt told us about an amazing outage happening in Australia uh, for Azure. And so they announced their uh, PIR uh, to tell about their impacted system. So apparently uh, August 30th to September 1st, uh, from 841 UTC to 640 UTC, uh, customers in Australia using Azure M365 and Power uh, BI services uh, were out. The issue was caused by utility power sag in Australia East Region, which tripped a subset of cooling units offline in one data center within one of the availability zones. We're working to restore cooling temperatures in the data center increase, so we proactively shut down a small subset of selected compute and storage scale units, kind of them, in an attempt to avoid damaging the hardware. Uh, due to the size of the data center campus, the staffing of the team at night was insufficient to restart the chillers in a timely manner, and they have temporarily increased the team size, which I guess is good, but like, how long are you going to do that for? And like... <laughs> Are you going to predict when the next outage is going to happen so you can have the right number of staff there or just hope that it's in this temporary window? Uh, and apparently, the uh, EOP for restarting chillers is slow to execute for an event with such a significant blast radius, and they're looking to improve the automation. Now, when I read through this, I had a bunch of thoughts, but I'm going to let Matt start because I think he's been thinking about it a lot longer than I have. Uh, what are your thoughts, Matt? So while a lot of this also, this was tied to a single availability zone. It also, if you look, uh, Oracle also had an outage at the same time. So my assumption is to share data center um, or Oracle's using Azure. But essentially, um, it was tied to one, one availability zone or zone in Azure terms. But it did affect other zones, which still confuses me. I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, but they did do a good job communicating along the way. Um, so I will give them that, like the alerts across the way was really good. Um, but a lot of times it was just like, we have no update, which I get. They don't necessarily have a full update. Um, things did recover pretty quickly. So I think really by about four or five hours, things were back up, if I remember correctly. But they're the long tail of getting the last couple services. And I think even at the end of this, where they called the end of the outage at like 640 UTC, there were still like they were like over ninety nine percent of storage accounts and ninety nine percent of Cosmo DB are up, and then they kind of just said we're stable and we're working on fixing the last couple of customers. Um, so I'm just still confused why you know five chillers they had they had two backups and nothing started up in the right way, um, which makes me question their whole DR thing. But you know you have to have DR for a reason. But they also I feel like even the HA because this was tied to one zone didn't kick over. I was reading many people that they had problems even in the HA. So it feels like there's still stuff tied to the whole region that was still tied to this one zone and this one subset of servers. So I'm still waiting for the full root cause analysis um, that I'm hoping is going to tie and answer a few of those questions. But if anybody has any other good answers, let me know. You likely won't be able to share it with us anyway, which is you know. Which is the more annoying part? <laughs> yeah, fun so, NDA. Be kind of NDA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, uh, the the most enjoyable part of this is that you you just learned that Azure doesn't actually have uh, physically segmented local or availability zones either. <laughs> so welcome yeah. to the Google Club. 
So mm-hmm. yeah, that's why that's why multiple availability zones were impacted. So. <laughs> oh, and you also, if you want to get into some of the other DR regions in Azure, you actually have to request access to them, which is also fun. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Uh, you know, my two thoughts on this were one, it takes me back to um, a session I went to reInvent many, many years ago, and they were talking about their data center facilities, and they were, they were talking about <clears throat> the chillers in particular, and that they were unhappy with the OAM vendor software on the chillers, that it didn't meet their specifications for how they wanted to handle certain failure conditions, and that it was it wasn't uh, or it was too tolerant of errors and didn't fail over quickly enough, and so they actually ended up writing their own firmware for that, and these are the kind of reasons why you do that. And then number two, why the hell is the chiller not behind a battery backup in a data center, for goodness sakes? Why does a power sag impact the chiller like this? This is a terrible design, and someone should be ashamed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Least condition power, like something. I mean, it doesn't have to be the full battery backup, but you better be, better be making sure power spikes or sags don't kill you like this. These types of outages are no fun. I know that from personal experience. So, you know, hug ops to everyone who is on site. And I, judging by the, you know, this release, it was one guy. No, three. And now three guys. <laughs> and then they've, they've all hired their, their uncles. Um, so temporarily. So if it happens again, they can all just run around pushing buttons as fast as possible. I mean, they, they now that they have enough people, they can play a good game of basketball. Mm. So, mm. You know. There's not a lot to do at a data center in the middle of the night. So I, I understand there why there's three. Uh, but I also, like, shouldn't you have more software to help restart chillers and things to make it better? Maybe that's why it's temporary. Maybe they're going to build more automation or something to not need as many bodies. And then also, you, you assume that the chillers are all close to each other. They're probably not. They're probably spread across nah. the entire data center floor. So yeah. you have to uh, run around like a crazy person trying to restart all five chillers that died in this outage. So yeah, hug ups. And there's probably a very long restart procedure. Right, like it's not a single button; just click it. It's yeah. Well, I, I did see in there that you know when they tried to restart the chiller, there was a pump fault, and the pump the pump starting, the chiller can't start, and so you know there was a bunch of comedy of errors, as I like to call them, <laughs> in these seven scenarios. It's amazing all the services that would cascade down to. I still remember like the S three outage years ago in US East one, where like you just saw every service fail, and it's kind of what this was. If you look at the list of services, it's like. 30, 40, 50 services long, you know, and it's kind of reminiscent of the S3 outage where it's like everything went down. RDS went down, like everything went down because of it. So, you know, it's one of those things where everything failed at the same time. And like you guys said, Hug Ops is the best solution here right now. Oracle continues to expand my favorite service, the Roving Edge. And now it is roving all over the beautiful green fields and English countryside. Jonathan, you might be able to see this out there, roving the, the farmlands, conveying with the sheep, all the things that it could do. The Oracle Roving Edge, of course, is their version of Azure Arc, which brings core cloud services to anywhere in a remote location and a ruggedized container to you rack that server. Uh, one option in a uh, nice Pelican case. Another option, which they call the lightweight unit, that comes with a battery, battery-operated device is the other option uh, if you have a more secure location that does not need to be ruggedized. Uh, to give you this capability to have your roving servers roving around the countryside of England. Since we all know that Oracle sites are just riding around the back of trucks, I find it very you know cute that they just productize this feature of their data centers. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like we should get a fee for that, a marketing consulting fee, because I feel like I gave this to them. But uh, yeah, no, it, it does sort of make me truck every time I see something with the roving edge. Like, oh, okay, it's roving. It makes no sense in the context. So it used to be in a garage, and, and now it's in the back of a, a, a VW uh, van. 
Yeah. I mean, at least with the battery, it is actually a roving device. It could rove. Uh-huh. It could be in a car yeah. now. Yeah. Or whatever moving object. I wonder how long the battery lasts. For an hour. For an hour. With two batteries, it lasts two hours. Mm. How do you swap them? Are they hot swappable? Yeah, I have three then. They are not. Keep one running at all times. Wait, how long does it take to charge a battery? You got, you got to have enough batteries to handle the cycle time of charging the battery. So it's, it's a complex uh, operation of how many batteries you need. All right, let's move on to our Cloud Journey series. And in honor of Google Next talking about nothing but AI, uh, we should let you know there's a massive AI engineering talent gap in the market. <laughs> and according to TechWorks, we'll need about 27 million AI engineers to close that gap. Uh, and they'll take uh, a lot of things. And so they talk about a few things of interest. And they talk about both the short-term and the longer-term needs for AI. And the short-term solution they propose is prompt engineers. Uh, engineering, they said, is basically scientific. And so most of them are experimenting with AI. Engineers are experimenting with AI already and taking advantage of things like GitHub Copilot and ChatGPT. The natural next step is to become a prompt engineer who is tasked with understanding the limitations of the model, designing a prompt in a natural language, evaluating performance, refining when necessary, deploying other internal data. And however, uh, they don't believe this is a long-term fix. This is a temporary thing until the limitations of current AI models get uh, addressed. But this is kind of where you can start if you're thinking about really getting into AI is becoming a good prompt engineer. Yeah, hang on, hang on, stop right there. (laughs) (laughs) This is no 27 million engineer gap. Those people are customers. Those people are customers of those of the AI, AI models and, and the AI services. Like you don't need to be a prompt engineer to deliver the service. You need to be a prompt engineer to use the service. So I don't I don't see it as a gap. I see it as a potential customer base. Well, I mean, it, that's their short term side is definitely you know everything you're doing now with LLM is prompts. So if you're trying to get into AI, then being a good prompt engineer makes you get better results. And you know you heard anecdotal stories about like you know graphic designers can get way better. Uh, things out of an image generator than a person like me who's an idiot about images. <laughs> and so they, you know, they can get a much better thing. They know the right words to say, the right prompts, and they can get it to basically sing. Or I just get it to kind of go, blah, <laughs> and give me something close enough to make me happy, but uh, not really great. Uh, but then, you know, they do talk about the longer term aspect of this is that once you get past this prompt engineering side, you got to get into machine learning skills, you got to learn Python, you got to get into the transformer model and knowing how to build and train models with text data and then pair that with core engineering skills. Uh, and then they basically said non-technical people are often better at getting outputs than technical people, but everyone needs to learn the engineering skills to do this. The 27 million people seems like a lot in the short term, knowing what the issues of AI are uh, and how limited it is in implementation. Mm, I doubt very much whether the long-term things are actually uh, even going to be problems in the long term. Because I think, you know, the I mean, AI, so early. <laughs> AIs will, 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 will build better AIs themselves. Like, I don't think anyone working with this is, is going to need to understand how the transform model works. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it's one of those things like, you know, yeah, it's diminishing returns on how long the human stays in the loop to make it better, right? Like, it might make you more effective for longer. Maybe. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I like to know how the model works so that way I can give it bad prompts. So that mm-hmm. way it can, I can take out Skynet. I need to know, I need to know how to go the other direction, like to be part of the resistance. <laughs> um, you know, they do talk about, uh, you know, some of the things around DevOps teams and different skill sets around AI and machine learning pathways. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and they do talk about, you know, the global chip shortage is what drives a lot of the demands for efficiency right now. But as the chips get more available, the, the efficiency needs kind of decrease. Other than the CFO doesn't want to pay for all that cloud computing, I'm sure. 
But um, it is kind of interesting to see how this continues to move through the process. But yeah, 37 million, I still, I can't quite wrap my brain, or 27 million, I can't quite wrap my brain around that number. That seems. But is it really just you're going to upskill or change the skill set of current engineers from, you know, something that's close to what they're doing now to that? So like take Python engineers and just get them to be a little bit better in data, data models? Like, or is it we need this is a completely new skill set? Because to me, this is more of like, a, hey, we can tweak some skills and you will get there and teach on the job versus like this is a new 27 million to the market type of thing. I think it's even bigger than just, you know, current software engineers, because it's really, you know, some of the examples are given are, you know, like people that are out way outside of tech, you know, AI for, you know, doing insurance adjustments or for managing the AC in a, in a bar, very large building. And so I think that the articles largely getting to like, you know, we're all going to become, you know, large language you know, machine learning experts to, in order to do basic tasks where we're interfacing with, with AI. And I think maybe that's more speaks more to where that very high number comes from. Cause I was rereading the article real quick. It doesn't explain where the 27 million. Comes from, but I think that's the crazy part is when you, when you expand it outside of tech and you expand it out into, you know, just common day life, you know, generative AI is going to be, a replacement or an augment of so many different things. I, I I don't think the prompt engineer thing is, I think it's a fad while the tools are still fairly immature. I think ultimately you won't need to be an expert prompt engineer. Like you don't need to be an expert mechanic to drive a car and you don't need to know how a computer works to use Excel. I think prompt engineering is because what we see now is just very, very early technology. And it's very cool, but to use it, you really need to, you need, you know, need those skills. Uh, in the future, I don't think you'll need those skills. Yeah, and it'll probably hurt you eventually. You know, like I, I remember back in the day trying to like tweak search results by like entering in words in different orders or leaving out connecting words, or you know, you can minus a word or quote a word. You know, all the little tricks you learn. And then over time, as as you know, the search engines got you know more data and kind of used to that like it was actually hurting search results after after a while because they wanted it in natural language i feel like the same thing with like alexas or google or like google homes like you know back when i first got them at a reinvent i got the dot from i don't know the reinvent in october the last reinvent that was in october like you spoke to it in a very specific way and now if i speak to it in that same way it just doesn't work yeah, I mean, everything you learn now will be garbage in two years, probably. <laughs> How to talk to an AI. Um, fascinating. We'll keep an eye on this thing. I will keep looking for good AI learning stuff because I'm trying to learn more about it, too. I'm sure you all are as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, that is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. See you later. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. I do have an after show. No. Oh. A couple things. Uh, so apparently the big thing in AI is attacking open AI. 
Sweet. Which apparently both Meta and Microsoft are really working on doing, which is sort of weird because Microsoft paid a lot of money to OpenAI, but apparently according to this article, that's what they're doing. So Meta, of course, has Llama 2, which we've talked about and made fun of many times, uh, which is an open source and could compete with bigger paid LM models like OpenAI or Google Bard or whatever else. Meta, of course, is releasing the coding model publicly as seen as a sharp contrast to OpenAI, who has been heavily secretive about its model and how it was built. Uh, because coding systems are very popular. We just have the loaded code llama not too long ago. Uh, and Microsoft apparently has hitched its wagon to OpenAI in the forms of billions of dollars of investment and likely Azure credits. But they're also cozying up to Databricks, which is positioning itself as the anti-OpenAI. And Microsoft plans to sell a new version of Databricks software that will help a customer make AI apps for their businesses according to three people with direct knowledge of the plan. And I asked, I, my question here for you guys is like, is OpenAI at risk? Or is this just kind of everyone with pitchforks trying to say that they're, they're screwed long-term? Because I, I, my feeling is that until someone really creates killer apps for any of these models, they're all kind of screwed. Because <laughs> I think we're starting to getting, you know, we're kind of at the trough of disillusionment phase of some of these AI things. I think we're starting to see kind of, you know, as Office gets it, you know, now rolled out through co, you know, GitHub Copilot or Office Copilot stuff. You've got Bard now coming into workspaces. I think people are going to get more and more exposure to these things and then realize how very limited they are in their capabilities. And I suspect that it's going to hurt their adoption in the short term until people come up with really killer solutions. I think these are inflammatory headlines. I, I don't think that Meta is attacking OpenAI. I think that they're trying to democratize access to it. I think they're trying to do a helpful thing and trying to spread out, you know, access to the model. We talked about it last week and it was a gift and, and this article just takes that the other way. And like, they're just the same action that they're, that we talked about last week. They're saying it's attacking open AI. It's not, it's, it's just not true. And same for the Microsoft plans. Like they're offering Databricks through their marketplace. Like, Okay, is that is offering a uh, a service on your marketplace really attacking another company? No, it's not. No, it's, so just, I, it's how you make money from all of your enemies and your friends. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's been a, well, a tried and true model for cloud providers forever. Like, yeah, we have a competitive service, or you can just buy that from the partner, and we'll get a piece of it too. Exactly, and it's yeah. I just I don't I really don't see any of this as as hurting AI or 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 anything really other than just inflammatory kind of nonsense. I'm going to have a point of contention over calling it a kind of open source or open. I mean, they may be giving it away for free, but it's, it's, it's about as far from open as you could get, really, because it's about a box that you download. And yes, you can use it for no additional cost, but you have no idea what it was trained on. You don't know if it's biased or not biased or how it's biased, because it's almost certainly got biases based on the training data. I, I'd be very careful downloading anything just because it's free and using it um, when you don't know how it's built, basically. Is it trustworthy? I mean, I think, I, actually, we were talking about this last week, you were gone because you were cranky. Uh, but <laughs> Very cranky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we talked about this. So actually, they've, they've open sourced um, the entire model building source code. So you can actually see the sources yeah. they're using for the model. You can actually run it yourself if you wanted to go build the Llama 2 model uh, on your own compute dollar with Amazon or Oracle or however you want to spend the money where. You can go build, you can go rebuild the model, then use your own data sets and your own data sources to help hydrate the model. So it is, it is open source 
more than a black box, but it is still a very large barrier to entry. Yeah, it's like saying that because GCC is open source, anything built with GCC is open source, even though you don't actually have the stuff that went into it. I mean, can you download the, every piece of training data that went into Llama 2? I don't know. Maybe you can. I don't know. I'm sure some of it's proprietary. I mean, I thought that that was the whole offering was was the, you know, there's the model that of varying sizes, but then there's all the accompanying software yeah, for management, allowing you to sort of tweak it and build your own. So I don't know. I mean, it's... I mean, anyone, anyone can download it and build their own models if they've got two or $3 million and, and uh, you know, GPUs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the trick uh, for yeah. sure. But I mean, that's in... You know, I, if you expand that out to like open source, you know, like no one's very rarely is anyone going line by line in code. And we're all accustomed to downloading stuff that we don't exactly know how it works and trying it out. That's why licenses are a big deal. And, um, you know, like, I don't know, like it, I, I have a hard time so, sort of seeing this as a nefarious move because I just don't see the benefit. Oh, I'm not saying it's nefarious. I, I certainly don't think that Meta has like implanted some information in these models and at some point, you know, in 2025, it, they're all going to wake up and start doing things. Um. <laughs> no, that's a hacker. That's a social engineering hacker that mm-hmm. puts something in there that hits every break or something at a certain time. Yeah. But, but the thing is, the fact remains is you can't inspect them. You can't download the data and, and, and deterministically decide whether or not it has been compromised somehow but due to the scale like sure i guess they could make it available but what's the average person or even a medium-sized company maybe a large company can but how does an average person then use these you know if if you had to build it all from scratch yourself you couldn't so this is like a you know Bike with training wheels. Here's the training wheels of it already trained. Now go, now go. I don't need to teach you how to balance. I just think people should uh, use things with caution. But they should, they should, you know. Anything that comes from Meta, I use with caution and, and gloves. <laughs> well, and you know, like being raised on, you know, 80s sci fi movies, you know, anything with AI should be used with caution, right? Like I, I assume all of this is going to wake up and realize kill that us all are terrible and kill us all like yeah <laughs> he's just accepted that years ago. yeah yeah no. well i topic i want to talk about here in the after show too and this is really for our you know listener conversation here but um i don't know how many of you have listened to other podcasts but podcast advertising has kind of fallen through the floor in the market and just as all ad revenue has fallen through the floor and so uh if you listen to other podcasts you probably heard them talk about doing subscribers and listener specials and things like that to kind of make it more engaged with our audience and give you a direct way to pay us for what we do here. If you think it's valuable, which is probably like two of you. Um, <laughs> but thanks mom. We do really appreciate what we're doing here. And so there's a, you know, kind of like a general conversation. I thought we'd maybe make a little bit public here of like, you know, I don't know that we've been really successful at selling ads. Uh, Foghorn has had the same ad for multiple years now and we appreciate them. Uh, yeah. But you know, we do hear from people sometimes like, Hey, well, Foghorn just update their ad. And uh, as much as we give them a hard time to do that, they don't update it as often as we'd like them to. So it's a little stale. But, um, you know, we talked about, you know, privately a little bit, Jonathan and I as kind of the founders of the podcast, that, you know, maybe something makes sense here. And I kind of 
you know, would people be interested in subscribing to the show for, I don't know, five bucks a month, two bucks a month, I don't know, some, some nominal amount of money. Uh, or, and then, you know, in exchange for that, we would maybe do something fun, you know, exclusive for them. I don't know what those would be yet, uh, but just kind of want to throw it out to the three of you as kind of an open discussion with our listeners. And if our listeners have great ideas, you know, you can email us at the podcast or, or talk to us on our Slack channel. But you know, we're trying to figure out. You know, we don't. We're not here to make it rich. We're just having fun. <laughs> we just want to make sure it breaks even. We'd like to pay Jonathan for his show note editing guy, Elliot. Uh, we like to pay our our podcast show note writer because she's lovely. Uh, and you know, we hate. We're not salespeople. We don't like selling ads. <laughs> to be frank, fairly frankly. Uh, you know, we tried. It's uh, but it's a lot of work, and marketing is a difficult business that we don't really want to be in that much. So we'd like to figure out a different model. And so this is kind of the question out to you, three of you, and our listeners. Yeah, it's kind of tricky, right? Like it's it's a. I go back and forth on this, and you know, like the I, I will admit that I've got a little bit of subscriber fatigue, where I feel you know like grew up complaining about if I could just buy one channel from cable instead of having to pay so much for cable, I would just do that. But now that I can buy channels, I don't want to do that. Uh, turns out like, <laughs> it turns out I, makes I feel like I'm being nickel and dimed by every, every network that starts their own streaming service. And then, you know, the, all the music services and, and, um, and then, you know, music, you know, a lot of the artists I follow, you know, there's a lot of Patreon and there's, there's just a lot of models are, are out there for, and so it's, on one hand, like it's great because you're it's going back to direct market, and you're paying for what you use and what you're listening for, and I think that's great. But it is also sort of this trick where the subscriber part, where it's this recurring bill thing, can can really add up. And you know, it's one of now there's AI services for looking at your credit card transactions and detecting you know subscriptions mm-hmm. you don't have or don't use. You know, so it's pretty funny. But again, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things you don't have to do it for everybody. If you don't want to subscribe, then you can still listen to our ad-sponsored content, <laughs> and we'll do a better job trying to sell ads, I guess. Uh, or we can provide, <laughs> you know, ad-free content, you know, on the day we record. If you wanted to, you know, want a bootleg version of it, for example, uh, and hear all of our errors and and the funniness of us trying to figure out show titles, we can record all that and make that part of our bootleg. <laughs> um, oh God! Yeah. But shouldn't we pay them? Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> yeah, we gotta um, reverse this. <laughs> Or, uh, you know, or you can do fun, you know, episodes like, you know, ranking Amazon services or, you know, you could do, um, you know, movie reviews or you could do, you know, things that aren't tech related necessarily. It doesn't have to always be tech. Again, it depends on what our listeners kind of would want in this model. And, you know, it's it's one of those things like we we want to keep doing the show. We want to keep making it. We like making it. It's fun. Even if I paid it all out of my pocket, I probably still do it. because That's fun for me. But um Actually, that's pretty much how it is. <laughs> right now, I pay for my part of it, and Jonathan pays for his part of it. Uh, and sometimes we get sponsorship, and we get we get paid back, which is nice. And then sometimes we don't. Uh, but if you're also interested in sponsoring the show, you, we definitely love to hear from you. <laughs> so we'd love to take your money and give you you can give us as many ad reads as you want to, so you don't have to repeat them every week. Uh, that's fine too. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, we definitely we want to figure out a way to make the show worthwhile. We want to make sure it's something our listeners care about, and we're passionate about it. We love it, um, and we want to make sure that it keeps going. Uh, at some level, but uh, yeah, this is kind of an open question to our listeners. If you're here all the way to the after show, uh, you clearly care about the show because you made it all the way here. This is why we're talking to you. We're just talking about this in the beginning of the show, uh, and so that's why we're asking you, our listeners, what you think. And so I would love your ideas, love your thoughts. And you know, I agree with Ryan. Sometimes I was adding up the price of all my TV services now: Hulu, Netflix, all that, and it's like, hey, that's more than I paid for cable. <laughs> so 
maybe uh, maybe this new world isn't as great as uh, we all thought it would be. Yeah, I just don't know anyone that I don't personally know anyone that subscribes to podcasts yet. But that doesn't mean you know me. I do it. Oh well, I, now I know that you do it. <laughs> you did not just add it in to your monthly things that you that you subscribe to. I do. I subscribe uh, to two podcasts actually, where I get access to exclusive content by being a subscriber, and it's sort of fun. So <laughs> cool. Oh, so anything about? All right, we'll let you guys all go. Have a great week, and uh, see you next week. All right. See you later. See you. Bye.